You're listening to Phone Calls with Founders. I hop on the phone with software founders all across the world and we talk about their journey. Candid insights, actionable tips, and ideas that you can reflect on as you scale your business to the next level. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hey, Bubs. Hey, how you doing? Hey, man. How's my audio? Yeah, it just sounds pretty good. Awesome, man. I feel so weird calling you Mubs like we've known each other for <laughs> 20 years, but I noticed that's what you go by, and I'm so happy you put that out there because I wasn't going to – I knew I was going to fuck <laughs> up your first name. <laughs> no, no. It's called cool. – no, I've been called Mubs since I was about six years old. So as you can imagine, having you know five and six-year-olds say my full name, it wasn't going to work either. So everybody started calling me Mubs, and it stuck. Yeah, yeah. No, I like it, man. It's nice and – uh. It's short and sweet. You should try to get like some sort of mubs domain, you know? If you had you asked me from my email, my email would have been me at mubs.me. Yeah, that would have been great. (laughs) All right. So you're in the East Coast. You're in in New York. Yes, I am. I I live in upstate New York now. I used to live out west first. Then I moved to New York and we lived in the city for a while. But for the last, I don't know, 16 years or so, we've lived in upstate New York now. So I got to tell you my, my New York story. I went to New York for the first time two years ago, and I'm 43 years old now. So it, it took me a while to get to New York City. But, <laughs> but before I tell that story, I want to hear a little bit about your background. You got a British accent, right? So yes. when did you move to the States? Well, so I guess the story starts a little earlier than that, in that I was born in a little village in the north of Pakistan. But my dad went to school in England. And so when he finished school, he was like, the family's moving to England. So when I was about four years old, we moved to England. And I lived in England for about 18 years. And after I finished school, I got my first job. I had to do with an Australian company, which was also moving from Australia to San Francisco. So in 1997, I moved from England to San Francisco. Yeah, so I lived out there for a few years. Then I got on job offer to move out here in New York City. I worked there for a few years. Then I started doing the whole work from home thing. So in July of 2000, I got my first job that was not in an office. And so ever since then, so since July of 2000, I've been working out out of either an apartment or a house. Wow. Yeah. Which is great because it's great for what we're going through right now in 2020. (laughs) Absolutely. But quality of life is just an awesome thing. And a lot of people love to be in your position. So that's awesome. And you're a prolific tinker maker. (laughs) And so I want to get into that. But let me just tell you this New York story. So it's summer of 2018, I think it was. And I head out to New York, going to do two weeks there. I'm walking around just being a tourist, right? First time there, I'm in awe. Like my head, just my neck hurts because I'm like, it's pointed straight up the entire time. New Yorkers are shouldering me saying, hey, asshole, you know, watch where you're going. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But so somehow I landed in the East Village. So I'm in the East Village on Third Street and it's like three o'clock in the afternoon and I'm super tired. I'm quenched. And here's the other thing a lot of people don't know when you're visiting New York is like you go there because you hear like the restaurants are so great and they are. But you know what? By the time I was done walking around or it was time for me to eat. I was so hungry. I never went, ended up going to any, like a lot of restaurants. I just ended up like, I was so hungry. I'm like, there's a hot dog stand right there. I'm like, let me just get a hot dog. That's how vanished I was. It's crazy. But so I'm super tired. It's sunny out. It's hotter than hell. It's humid as hell. And there's a bench right there on third street. And so 
you know, it's a real, you know, East Village, real eclectic area. And so yeah. I sit down on this bench, right? And so I'm like, oh, I'm relaxed. I whip out my phone. I start doing these like social media posts and like updating pictures. And next thing I know, <laughs> like a couple minutes later, I hear this like this knock and this boom. It's like boom. And the door swings open and this door right next to the bench. And this guy, this big burly guy in the most New York accent, he pops his head out and he's like, hey, get the fuck off our bench. <laughs> Just like that to me. And I'm like, holy shit. You know, I'm like, okay, all right, I'm out of, I'm out of here. I wouldn't come to New York to die or pick a fight. So I get up and I, I start moving down the block. And then I pause for a second, turn around. I'm like, what the hell was I sitting in front of? I was sitting in front of the Hell's Angels chapter, <laughs> motorcycle gang club in East Village. And I had no idea. And there, there was a reason why nobody else was sitting on that bench. Like, <laughs> people knew better. The locals knew yes. better. <laughs> yeah. New York's a fantastic place. But if you don't know, you know, exactly where you are and what's around you, at sort of all times, you can you can get into some scrapes that you really weren't expecting to kind of land land yourself in. So yeah, no, I mean, like I mean, I, I lived in New York for a few years and it was fantastic. You know, obviously not the best place to like start a family and, and to have kids and stuff. So once once we got at that point, that was when we kind of moved kind of out of the city and stuff too. So I tell people all the time, I'm like, if you're young and single. Any big city, really, it's a fantastic place to be. Uh, but well, once you get a little bit older, uh, you know, being out here in the suburbs, having like a nice house with a yard and and two cars, and you know, doing no one doing the whole white picket fence thing, you know, especially now in the middle of the pandemic, it was fantastic to have like a whole house so that we could all kind of spread out and kind of have our own space. I can't imagine being in like a you know, sort of eight, 900 square feet apartment and being squished like on top of each other as well. So, yeah. And so um, upstate New York, I'm assuming is more chill and it's just better for, for the family and right. Yeah. I mean, to buy a house up here was way, way, way more affordable than anything, anywhere close to uh, New York City and stuff like that. And, you know, so it's just a much, yeah, it's like you said, I mean, like there's, you know, there's not much public transportation around here or anything like that. So you have to have a car. And yeah, but I mean, where, where we live, well, we're actually two hours from New York City. We're also two hours from Boston as well. So we're kind of in a cool spot. So, you know, you still have the opportunity to go down and watch, you know, if you're into sports, you can watch some sports. If you're into music or anything like that, there's lots of concerts and things like that as well that you can, that you can find within driving distance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm out here in LA now. I'm originally from Chicago, but uh, I moved out to LA about a decade ago. Okay. So you could say I spent my late thirties, early forties in LA. It's pretty wild out here. And I don't know <laughs> if I'm going to stay here forever. I mean, I love the weather, but I'm, I'm looking at like San Diego and some other places. So we'll see, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I did some work for um, some video game companies. So I had to spend some time out in LA as well. And that's got a completely different vibe. I lived down in San Francisco for a while, which has its own very specific yeah. feel. <laughs> and then LA, you know, once once I was visiting there, so I was like, this is nothing like California, like like the rest of California either. Yep. I mean, that's to me was like the amazing thing about moving out here to the States was that, yeah, it's one country, but it's a very, very, very big country. And you can travel very long distance to still be in the same country, but then feel like you're in a completely different country place as well so it's a very fun place to be you know all politics aside you know if we just yeah. ignore all of that stuff <laughs> the country itself is still a fantastic place to be and uh you know we'll, we'll find out in a few i guess in like six or seven days 
what the next four years looks like as well. <laughs> yeah, we will. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, that's, what's great about the States is like all these cities are so different and like, and it's funny because these cities go through cycles. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm from Chicago and when I was growing up, Detroit, Michigan, where half my family is from, was not a pleasant place to be, you know, in the late 80s and stuff like that and early 90s. But now Detroit's having a real resurgence and they have a yep. real great food scene there. They got a good musical scene, tech music. So it's interesting for sure, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even New York City, I mean, like, you know, early 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, even late 80s, there was very, very little of New York City that you would actually want to walk around, especially in, in like the evening and stuff. And so even that went through its cycle of New York City was like not somewhere I wanted to be, but after a while it got kind of cleaned up and, uh, and got a lot safer as well. So I was glad I was there when when I was and, and not a few years earlier as well. <laughs> That's awesome, man. <laughs> By trade, you're an engineer, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I tell people I started doing this stuff when there really wasn't like this separation. Like we used to make sites, right? Like we used to make websites. I was one of these OG webmasters, right? People would come right. to us and say, we need to build a website. And yeah, we didn't have like, you're a designer, you're a developer, you're a front end guy, you're a back end guy. It was just like, you're the dude who makes the website. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I've been around the sort of scene for a really long time. Officially, yeah, I still call myself a, a back-end developer, but because I've been around for such a long time, I'm definitely what you'd call like the full stack, jack of all trades sure. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you were working, I mean, you were like me probably like, I remember when the internet first came around, like I was coding like, and I'm not a developer or an engineer by trade. I'm just, I'm a non-tech founder. But back then I was interested and I'm still interested in code and I was doing like HTML for like for my favorite band sites and stuff, you know, and that was really yeah. cool, but it's more involved now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, in many ways it is more involved, but it's also easier now. Like there's so many tools and things out there now that you can put up a site now without even having to understand HTML as well. So there's that kind of that separation that's happened. Yes. There's, if you know how to code or you want to know how to code, you can do all that stuff and learn all of the, technology and, and really get into that side of things as well. But if you just want to, like, I just want to put out a site, you can just point and click and update a few bits and pieces here and there and you have a site live. So, so it's, it's kind of Man. an interesting place that well, we're in now. Yeah, Mub, that's what I'm trying to tell founders all the time. Like the, the technical debt is so low these days. And now you have this whole no code movement going on all these coded apps that are helping you do things with no code is it's interesting, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's no reason. I mean, like the excuses keep melting away for founders and you know what I mean? I'm constantly preaching, just take the first fucking step. You know what I mean? Do something, make something, build something. That's really what I've been telling a lot of people. I'm like, cause people used to, people still do. People come to me all the time. Like most have got this idea. I want to, I want to make this application, but I can't code. I don't know how to, you know, I'd, you know, will you help me kind of essentially kind of thing. And, you know, until like a couple of years ago, it was, it would really, I would have to make that kind of evaluation of, is this something I want to do? Is this, is this something I want to help with? You know, is this something I have the time for right now? And you would have to kind of make that choice. But now I just tell people, look, just go launch a landing page, just go launch a blog, just go do something that shows that what you want to do is actually something people actually want. And if you can show me that there's, you know, you've got a blog with 100,000 readers or 20,000 readers or whatever it is, it shows me, not just me, but it shows everybody that the thing that you want to do is something that people actually want. And if you can show that to anybody, 
you can hire, you can find people who will help you, you can go raise capital with that kind of audience that you have. And you can do that without having any technical skills whatsoever now. Yeah, you know, personally, for me, I'm in a conundrum because I'm telling him, I have a 15-year-old son, his name is Colin, and I'm telling him, dude, you're living in one of the most remarkable times of our species. Like, what do you mean, dad? And I'm like, well, here's the thing. Like the, the earth is like billions of years old. You know, Homo sapiens only been around for what, a million years or what? I don't know the math is on it, but you know, and we went from like fire to launching satellites within, you know, thousands of years. I mean, if you take those thousands of years and you put it on the timeline of the earth, I mean, we have exponentially and we yeah. continue to, you know, to go forward with technology. And so I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. But, but at the same time, as a father, I don't even know where to like steer him to because <laughs> things are changing so quickly. I'm like, one moment I wake up, I'm like, you need to be a blockchain architect. You know, the next <laughs> one, I'm like, no, 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 you need to be a growth hacker. <laughs> the next one, I'm like, no, fuck it. You're going to be a cook. You know, <laughs> I just don't know where to go. You know, I mean, do you struggle with that a little bit with your kids or? Colin, you better become an epidemiologist because viruses <laughs> are going to be everywhere. Right. Nanotechnology. <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I do struggle with that. And, you know, I've tried not to force my kids to do a specific thing, right? Like, I mean, I, I know when I was growing up and being from Southeast Asia, being from the Indian subcontinent and stuff, if you weren't a lawyer or a accountant or something professional like that, you know, you weren't, you know, you, you weren't held in the highest of esteem. So my parents would have loved if I went to post school and being a lawyer or an accountant or whatever. But, you know, I chose to be your software guy and they were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, Mugs, it's like, what is this computer stuff you keep talking about? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I've tried to encourage my kids, not so much, you know, down a specific path about what you should be doing and stuff, more just encouraging them to be open to new things and to learn new things. Because I think to some degree, you know, you can try and steer them down a path right now, but we don't know what where the world will be in two or three years, even let alone five or 10 years. So yeah. I think the most important skill that anybody can have these days is just the willingness and the ability to learn new things. If you have that ability, then wherever the world ends up, then I think you'll be able to kind of handle it and you'll be able to kind of make the most of it. You know, rather than just having one skill that you've focused on, you know, sort of young adult life, just trying to achieve that one one specific thing instead. Yeah, no, I totally agree. You know, I think I was, I might've been the opposite of you. I had no direction for my parents <laughs> uh, and they got divorced when I was a senior in high school and they split up and, you know, I was kind of on my own, but it, it seems like there were some, some expectations for you as you were growing up. How did you break through that mold that they wanted you to be in? Well, I mean, fortunately, I was also the first person in my family, you know, coming over from Pakistan and stuff who went to university kind of at the time. So to some degree, it didn't really matter what I was studying. The fact that I was studying <laughs> you hit the, the milestone. Fact that I was in university, I was like, I'm already way ahead of everybody else. So, <laughs> so it, it, it became a little bit easier for me to kind of be, you know, just to basically say, mom and dad, I don't want to be a lawyer because I didn't want to be a lawyer. Were you like the shot caller at the family parties? Like, were you, were you like looking down at the cousins? Like, dude... <laughs> Have you been to the university yet? No? Okay, then shut up. Well, well, it, it's funny because I was the youngest of four kids as well. And so it was kind of weird, right? Like in that I was the one leaving to go to university and everything, but I was also the youngest. So I mean, I, I'm sure I had an attitude back then. I mean, I guess everybody <laughs> has an attitude back then. But it, but it was also, I mean, I think ultimately what ended up happening was that 
I didn't really hit any road bumps along the way, right? Like, I mean, I went to university. I did a really cool internship while I was at university. So, so I did kind of what they used to call a sandwich program. So I went to school for two years. I went out to work for a year and then I did a final year. And that one year that I was out working, it was for a big investment bank in the center of London. And so I think that one year just kind of eased my parents' mind that I wasn't just wasting my time. You know, like yeah. it was like, oh, you could go work for a big bank in the center of London doing this computer stuff. Well, that's fantastic, much, You know, it's like, I think it just kind of, <laughs> kind of eased everybody's mind that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to be some struggling artist the rest of my life or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you've been tinkering your whole life. So you're making all these things. I want you to tell me a little bit about some of those things or maybe the most interesting side project. Then you have this, this moment where you are product hunt maker of the year. Talk us through that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I pretty much, I don't know exactly when I started to play with computers. I was about eight years old, as close as I can remember. We got a VIC-20. It was a Commodore VIC-20 that we got in the family. We used to attach it to the TV like you used to do way back <laughs> when. And so I just kind of started to play around with it. And that's kind of when I started to like, just, this is cool. I can, I can make things happen on the screen and stuff. Yeah. Ever since then, I've just been kind of tinkering with things. And because you know, back then you didn't really study computers too much in high school or, or kind of anything like that. Uh, you, you kind of have to wait till you're at university, but I was tinkering with them in evenings and weekends, even way back, way back then. I know I released my, I say I'm, I'm doing air quotes. I don't know if you can see, <laughs> but I released some software when I was like 11 years old, you know, I put it out on a floppy disk and sent it away, you know, so doing, so do, doing those kind of things. So, yeah, so ever since then I've been, I've been kind of playing around. I built, you know, what you would term now a side project. I probably released my first one in 2001. I think I, I kind of built my first website that was my own. It wasn't something that somebody had hired me to do or anything like that. And I just did it for fun. And then ever since then, you know, it just, it's just been something that I do in kind of my spare time. I've, I've always had a full-time job as well, either working for startups or kind of agency world and, and you know, working in the agency world. But also always in weekends and evenings and stuff, I just like to play around with stuff and, and to kind of make stuff. Interesting projects. Probably the one that you may, may or may not have heard of, but it's the one that probably had the most publicity about three years back, I built a website with somebody uh, I met online. We never actually met in person. Lives in Eastern Europe. We built a website called Will Robots Take My Job? <laughs> and it was just this you know, fun little thing that we built in two weekends. Is this what led to you being the maker of the year for Product Hunt? Um, or was it, what I was think... the criteria for that? Was it just like output? Like how many things you, you were putting out there into the public? Protocol has never said what the exact criteria is. It's a combination of a number of those things, like how many things you built, how well they're received. It's a magic formula that they have that they have never really shared with kind of anybody what the formula is. But yeah, I think a large part of why I was selected for maker of the ever 2016 was because I just made so many things. Yeah. But yeah, so... Had to been, those were cool things. Though. I mean, it, they don't just arbitrarily pick it, right? Like... There had to have been some fanfare. No. You were like, you know, oh, no, I mean, generating I, I've some got, froth on the website, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I've, I've had products that I, I built on my own and with other people that have like 3,000 upvotes on Paraton, have, you know, 500 upvotes, 
hells and up. But so it's not like stuff that I've just launched and, you know, I've launched and I've got like one or two votes on them or anything like that. So, so even though I'm, I'm kind of putting out a lot of stuff, it's stuff that is being well received and people like and people use a lot as well. So yeah, absolutely. It's not just how many, how much stuff you put out, but it's got to be high quality stuff as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, now you've set the bar for yourself. Now you got to work in 2021. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so just going back to Will Robots, I mean, so we put that out, we built it in like two weekends and in the first week it had 4 million page views. Wow. I mean, obviously I'm sure you weren't like strategizing. I'm sure you just no. put it out there. And so <laughs> was it product hunt you feel like, or was it like hacker news? What was driving all the, the visits? I mean, I tell people like product hunt itself isn't the end of the road, right? Like you put it on product hunt to kind of help you spread it even wider than that, right? It's because the big advantage that you get from product hunt is that there's people on there, there's journalists on there, there's bloggers on there who are looking for like cool stuff that they want to write about. So when we put Will Robots, I put it, I think I put it both on Hacker News and on Product Hunt on the same Friday morning, I think it was that I put it on there. But it got picked up. Somebody had seen it either. I'm not sure exactly where they saw it, whether they saw it on Product Hunt or they saw it on Hacker News, but it was a writer for the next web saw it and wrote a little article about it. And from the next web, which is actually owned by MSNBC or is owned by NBC as well, picked it up and actually did appear on, appeared on MSNBC.com wow. as well. And so once it gets the a sort of international site like that, it just blew up. It just went everywhere after that. So it was completely unintentional, I should say. It wasn't like a planned PR blitz or anything like that. It was just yeah. like a cool thing that we built that we thought the world would like. And it just, you know, it just hit right because there was that, back, I think like this was like, so this is in like 2017. We, I think we launched that one. You know, it was, people were interested about like, you know, so the AI and robotics and people were concerned about, you know, are my jobs kind of be automated away as well? So we just kind of hit it right at the right time and it just exploded. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. Did you guys ever try to monetize it? If so not, why not? The very next day. So on the Saturday, we were scrambling. We were like, okay, where can we get some ads that we can throw up here? And just so that we can, because obviously we didn't really have a plan for like, you know, in terms of making money for it. But obviously once you get, you know, I think in that first day we'd had, I think we turned something like a half a million page views just in the first like eight or 12 hours that it was actually kind of up. And so, yeah, so we scrambled and we, um, we found somebody who would put some ads up on that. I think we made... In the first month, we made like three and a half thousand dollars off of that, just with just like kind of stock ads, as kind of essentially. Yeah, yeah. And so, where is it today? Did you guys kind of bury it, or no? So we sold it. Uh, oh, you sold about, it. Yeah. So it's been a year and a half, I think, since we sold it. So yeah. So we kind of ran it for a year and a half, and it was still doing. I think it was still doing somewhere between three hundred thousand and half a million page views a month back then. And so, but we were like, we don't know what to do with it, right? We just, like I said, we never really had a plan for it. And it's such a very specific name as well, right? Like, it's yeah. not like you could kind of pivot it and just make it something else. And so, so yeah, so we just, uh, we we kind of started with just putting up on Flipper actually, uh, just to kind of see if there's any interest. And eventually we sold it off Flipper. But, but yeah, so we ended up selling it based on, I think we sold it for, uh, what did we sell it for? It was about three or four times what it was doing in terms of ad 
revenue at the time in terms of annual ad revenue kind of at the time. So it was not a bad thing. I mean, we basically spent like maybe like a week's worth of work in terms of actually working on it. And so I think, you know, all in, in terms of how much money we made from the ads that we had and how much we sold it for, I think we got close to about, it was somewhere between the 50 and 60K range. That's great, man. I like, I mean, that's people would, I mean, founders would love to do that. And it was, it was a quick exit too, you know, it was exactly. That's fantastic, man. And you know, once you get that first taste that either that first exit or that first revenue dollar coming in on the straight payment processor, (laughs) I mean, you're pretty hooked, you know? Yeah. Once you realize that, you know, you can pretty much do anything and, you know, if it hits you just right, it can make money, right? Like, I mean, because like I said, we, we didn't really think we were going to make money off of that particular site. Uh, it was just kind of a fun fact that we were doing. But once you realize that really just, just about anything on the internet can make money. And, and at that point, you just, well, I'm just going to make more stuff and we'll see if anything hits as well. <laughs> Absolutely, man. That's awesome. So I did some poking around and are you working with Nathan on something? Yeah. So I met Nathan about 18 months. I guess it's been about eight. Well, pretty, yeah, I think about 18 months now. He's out here in LA. Uh, He's out here in LA. I don't know if it's temporary or permanent, but him and I were going to go have coffee. I haven't followed up with him. You should, I think he's he's there for Halloween, so you should go, you should you should reach out. Yeah, um, he splits his time between LA and Austin, so he's he's yeah, so just wherever he feels like being, that's that's kind of where he is. Yeah, so I I think I've met Nathan once in person. He came to New York City, and I went into and in, in to kind of hang out with him as well. It's been about eighteen months. We're kind of working on some stuff on the side, just on next to all of our other things that we were doing as well. Just kind of seeing if we like working together and 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 just kind of working on stuff. But eventually, that kind of turned into what is now Founder Path, and so we're both now doing it full time. You guys are got- working together full time on Founder Path. Yes, I want to hear about this. this is yeah. this is interesting. <laughs> when I say full time, I mean yeah, obviously as kind of as you know, with Nathan, he's got about. 60 things happening right. with his podcast <laughs> and his book and, you know, and, and his magazine and, you know, sort of all sorts of other things that I've got my full time, but I got all these like side projects that I like to do as well. So as much as full time as we can do, that's kind of what we're up to, but it's our main focus right now and probably will be for the next few years at least. <laughs> Are you guys in stealth mode or can you tell the listeners a little? Oh, no, no. Time? It's yeah, it's live. Uh, Nathan's talked about it a lot on his podcast and, and his, uh, YouTube channel and stuff like that. So yeah, so Founder Path is kind of an alternative way to raise funding if you're a SaaS business. So if you have some history in terms of subscriber information, and we can analyze that. So if you connect like your Stripe account with us, you know, purely read only access, we don't, we, we don't need any other kind of access. We can kind of look at how much you're charging your customers, how happy your customers are based on your retention and their churn and, and all that kind of stuff. And if you're looking to raise some capital because you want to expand, you want to hire some people, but you want to have some cash in the bank, normally you would have to go to a venture capitalist and say, hey, I want to raise some money. Here's some chunk of my company that you can have. We will actually just lend you the money instead. And you'll obviously, we'll, we'll figure out what sort of terms are and, and all that kind of stuff. But that way you get to keep control of your company. You keep all of your shares and all of your equity and everything like that. And you kind of, and we will help fund whatever expansion it is that you want to that you want to oh, do okay. so that's fantastic because I love any outlet for founders to or any opportunity for founders to get funding. I think I've taken a stripe capital advance now twice. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really appreciative right. of that. 
So basically, so who's funding on the lending side then for Founders Path? Is it you so guys? At the beginning, it was Nathan's idea. And so he came to me with the idea. Was He's not a technical guy either. So <laughs> he wanted to test the idea himself. So he put up his own capital. And so we lent that money out to a few people. And I believe they've, they've paid it back now. So that's good. <laughs> and so since we proved that the model worked and Nathan, as you know, is a very well connected individual. So we now have access to capital from other people since we've proven that the model works. So just like you know, some institutions will put money in the stock market or they put it in bonds or whatever, they've allocated some percentage of their portfolio that they've said, hey, if you guys find you know, some SaaS companies who want to borrow some cash, we have access to those funds now. And so they give it to us, I believe it's um, at 12%. And then whatever we can make over that, we pay them back obviously at 12%. And then whatever extra we can make on that in terms of how we lend out to, to founders, that's the percentage that we earn for the work that we do. 12% seems high though in today's rate of I'm surprised you're, they're getting away with charging you guys that much. You know what I mean? I, mean, I think again, I mean, I mean, even though we proved the model, we're still proving the model. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm expecting that, you know, as we have some history and stuff. And, and and again, as we prove that we can build the formulas and the models that we can prove that the risk is is low enough. Because obviously, you know, you're saying 12%, but how many percentage of those SaaS companies are going to default and you won't get any of the money back because they stop operating or whatever it is, right? So, so you got to kind of factor that stuff into it as well in terms of how you... We're basically lending money out to people and we're expecting them to pay it back, but... That's yeah. not always how the world works. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a great idea. You yeah. know, it'll be interesting to see where you guys go. If you guys, you do a rolling fund or you just work directly with like family funds or, you know, that nature. But yeah, I mean, the, the interest rates are there and why go to an, an investment banker or a bank and, and, and not get paid anything on a CD or something when you could be doing something like this. And you guys intimately know how SaaS works. You know that once you're up right. and running and you have revenue, as long as a pandemic doesn't happen, right? <laughs> uh, In some ways, this is like the ideal storm for us too, because like you said, people don't understand SaaS, right? So the fact that we can actually look at the SaaS business, and frankly, a lot of SaaS businesses are doing really well right now as well, because people have shifted their operations from in-person stuff to kind of online as well. So yep. it's actually turned out that, I mean, a lot of SaaS companies have come to us and say, look, we actually need to grow right now. We, we need to expand. We need to hire more people. But we would like some funds to be able to do all of that stuff as well. And so it's actually, yeah, although the pandemic is it overall has been a slowdown on sort of the economy as a whole, there's certain parts of it that it's actually helping out a lot as well. Oh, yeah. It's been a great year for tech and a great year for SaaS. And, you know, it's hard to pick a silver lining out, out of this. And there's been so many tragic deaths. But, you know, it, it is pushing everybody forward digitally. You know, it's a good thing because we're going to see some gains economically for that over the over the years. But that's awesome, man. Well, uh, so I'll definitely link to that in the show notes for Founders Pass. So that's cool. You and Nathan are working on that. I wish you guys much success. Talk to me a little bit about like professionally and maybe even personally, you know, it's up to you. But like what's been some of the biggest influencers in your life? That's I mean, it's an interesting because people ask me that a lot. And I tend to read a lot, right? Like I read a lot of books and you know, I, I kind of try and learn from a lot of people kind of over the years and stuff, but I don't really follow individual people. I believe very firmly that you know everybody has to forge their own path and find the thing that works 
for them. So in that way, although, you know, obviously, you know, you, you kind of see what other people are up to and stuff, but you try and take what's worked for somebody else and say, how, how can I apply that to kind of me and kind of my stuff? I mean, that, that to me has always been kind of what's worked out well, not trying to replicate what other people have created and kind of uh, achieved and just kind of think, what's the thing that I want to do and kind of how do I make it happen with all the things that I've learned from kind of other people out there instead? Okay. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> where do you, um, you got a lot going on. You're uh, constantly tinkering with stuff, but where do you see yourself in five years? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, like I said, I mean, I mean, obviously ho- hoping that founder path is a massive, ma- a massive hit, but really, I mean, like, I don't really see myself doing anything too differently either. Right. Like, I mean, I'd still just be finding the next thing to kind of work on really. So because I think that's just the kind of mindset that I have is, you know, idle hands are not a good thing. <laughs> so, so uh, I think uh, absolutely would still be just like tinkering on stuff and trying to find what the next big idea is. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'm kind of the same way. Um, I have my hands on a lot of things and I don't know. I don't know if it's cause I'm getting older or, what, but I feel like I'm definitely feeling like I'm getting too spread out. You know, I'm thinning myself too mm-hmm. much. So it's definitely something founders should be cautious cautious of because <laughs> you know you got to focus on maybe one or two or three things and that's it. You know, and some will t- and the conventional advice is just focus on that one thing, right? <laughs> yeah, and I like to say, I mean that that to me is like like I said, my main focus, you know, sort of these days is founder path, and so absolutely, you know, but. Just like everybody else, you know, you still need to have a hobby. You still need to have things that you do for fun and entertainment as well. And and that's what a lot of these side things are, right? Like, I mean, you know, some like, you know, the way that I try to explain it is like, you know, some people come home from work, you know, from having worked eight, 10 hour days and they go spend three hours in the garden planting flowers and things like yeah. that. Or they'll go to the garage and play with their car engines and and and, and sort of stuff like that just to kind of unwind or whatever it is that they want to do. For me, that unwinding happens to be, strangely enough, even though I've worked eight hours, 10 hours a day in front of a computer, for me, the hobby and the fun stuff still happens in front of a computer as well. <laughs> no, you're so right about that. I mean, our dads used to go to a job, work nine to five, and then you'd catch them doing a hobby or usually working out yeah. of the garage or building something mechanical, whereas... Yeah. You know, you and I were doing things online, which is interesting. And I think that to me has always been the thing that I think has surprised a lot of people, right? Like, because I, I speak to a lot of engineers and stuff like that. And they're like, Mubs, I go to work every day. I come home. The last thing I want to do is I want to turn on the computer. Right? Like, I, <laughs> they just want to shut the thing off and just ignore it until the next morning. But, I, you know, I come home and I'm like, okay, I know I worked all day. I've looked at the screen for eight hours a day. But that's something I was doing for somebody else, right? Like somebody paid me to work on something or to make something. Now I get to do whatever I want to, right? I get to make it look like however I want to. I get to build whatever idea I think is really awesome and cool. So that to me has always been the sort of thing that I think kind of makes me stand out sometimes from a lot from a lot of other kind of engineers and stuff is that I can make that separation between what I'm doing for being paid for work and the stuff that I want to do in weekends and evenings and and kind of stuff like that too. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is there's so much efficiency and I get off on building something, but now I'm getting off even more on building it quickly and testing yeah. it. If I'm tinkering around the garage, I don't have those same efficiencies. Like 
you know, if I want to build something like, oh shit, I got to go to Home Depot now. I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's a pain in the ass. I want those same efficiencies offline as I have online and I can't get them. So I end up staying in the online space because I'm addicted to those, uh, those signals. Those. And for me personally too, is, I mean, that to me is the most interesting bit, right? Like starting with a blank canvas and then, you know, within a few hours, you have something that you've created that didn't exist already. And so that going from that blank canvas to something functional, something, something that works, something you can share with other people is the most exciting bit, right? You know, I mean, yes, you know, I've done the working for big corporations and making stuff that scales to hundreds of thousands of people every month and, you know, and, and even more than that. So that, you know, that has its own challenges as well, but, but to just be able to sit down every evening or every weekend or whatever, start with a blank canvas and just have an idea. And at the end of that weekend or whatever, have something that is actually functioning application as well. That's a whole other endorphin hit that you get from just that, you know, just that sort of creation kind of thing that you really can't do kind of anywhere else. I don't think. Yeah. I just thought of an idea. Be like, I I'm, I'm addicted to like wireframing. I love having an idea, waking up with an idea and be like, shit, that's a fucking cool idea. Like, well, let me wireframe. Cause I'm, I've gotten really good over the years wireframing because it cuts down on the technical debt and it's just easier to have a conversation with the engineer mm-hmm. and, you know, then you can take that wireframe and make it into a live HTML kind of dummy yep. version, which is even the neck even cooler, right? But it'd be kind of cool if there was like an MVP service for you. Like you agree on a set price for a single feature or a single purpose app, and then you provide the wireframes and they for like four grand or five grand, they just build it for you. Yeah. Boom, you're done, you know? <laughs> and then you can just start playing around. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, no, I, I built stuff like that and when I was doing freelance work. A lot of what I used to do was that kind of stuff where it was people like, I've got this idea. It's very specific functionality. I need it in like a week. Well, here's how we think it should work. And they just kind of left me alone for a week, said, here's the screen flow that we think we need. Off you go, mobs. <laughs> 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 and it worked out well because, it, because I, I think you're right too, because one, if you can do it in that short amount of time, right? It's going to take six months to do it, then it's not worth it for kind of anybody. But if you do it in that short amount of time, even if they're going to then go use that to actually grow raise some money so they can make like the next version or whatever it is, everybody's happier having something that they can actually interact with and something they can actually see and kind of feel as opposed to just like talking in, you know, in sort of high level ideas. I think you're right. It ends up saving so much time and money in terms of actually having a functioning thing that it makes it worthwhile to spend that week to actually make something instead. Yeah, we just gotta we gotta spread the gospel, man. We just gotta help founders just take that first step, you know? <laughs> yeah. A lot of them are sitting on the sidelines and they should be taking their first step because that's part of investing in yourself. Um, yeah. you never know where it's gonna lead. That to me has always been the sort of other thing is that, you know, I tell people is that you never know where you're gonna end up, right? Just me meeting eight and eighteen months ago. I had no idea we were going to work on Founder Path, you know, like that's not the idea that we were working on, (laughs) you know, way back when. So, you know, it it may not be like the big and the massive, you know, you're not going to build the next Facebook or whatever, but if it's a cool idea, if it's something that you're excited about, just start, you know, like, and and if if it ends up being something fantastic, if not, at least you've kind of enjoyed yourself along the way and you've made something that hopefully you've found helpful as well. Absolutely, man. All right. Well, I don't want to keep you too long. It was so cool meeting you, man. And you said you're a kind of a prolific reader. So what's something you've read interesting lately? 
or well, even a I've, documentary. So. so I've actually read a fair number of stuff during the pandemic started because <laughs> we were locked in our rooms and stuff. But I think if people haven't read it, I would highly recommend Pilt to Sell. Build to Sell, yeah. Uh, yeah, if, if you guys haven't read that, absolutely read that. I reread that recently, which kind of mentioned it. I think that's an awesome book because it, it, I mean, it talks a, a lot about, it just talks a lot about the psychology of kind of how you should build things and also how you should feel about the things that you've created because chances are, you know, we don't live, you know, 60 years ago, 50 years ago, it, where you used to do one thing for your whole life and that's, that's kind of what you would do. These days, I think there should be a lot more, I want to build something, I want to make it something significant and then I want to sell it to somebody and, and then do something else as well. I think that's the other thing that kind of founders get, they fall in love too much with their idea and kind of what they've created. And I think they lose a lot of opportunity to kind of exit and do something else as well. And so I think that's a really good book because it teaches you how to do that. But also from a psychology standpoint of, yes, you should be passionate about what you want to do, but it's not you, right? Like it's just something that you happen to be working on right now and you might want to do something else as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Built to Sell by John Warwillow. It's got four and a half stars on Amazon, 700 ratings basically. And it's a fairly new book. I mean, it's only 2012. So it's only like eight yeah. years old, but yeah, that's a pop. I've seen that. I've heard about that book. I haven't actually, I think I've read the book or got halfway through it. I'm a horrible <laughs> reader, but I do read, <laughs> but yeah, build your, whatever you're going to build. That's a mistake that I made early on, Build whatever you're building. And this is for any of the listeners, build it with the intent to sell. You can be your baby and you can coddle it and work on it and perfect it as long as you want. But Make sure all your documentation is up to speed. Make sure you have some sort of analytic software that's tracking you know, how much revenue you've made. And so you can open up the books, if you will, to somebody and you never know when you're going to get an offer that you can't refuse, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Bob, so great meeting you. So great talking. I appreciate you coming on, man. I got to get the phone with you and uh, we'll talk again. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Bye. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode. Go to sasspreneur.blog. That's S-A-A-S-P-N-R.blog, sasspreneur.blog to check out more episodes and the articles I write all about being a founder and launching your next business.